Welcome to another edition of Mr. Nice Guy. I'm Ben Slowey, uh, joined on this beautiful day by a special guest here. Um, he is the Director of Curriculum and Instruction for the Shorewood School District, as well as he's on the board on Carmen Schools of Science and Technology. Um, he's also been involved in the City Milwaukee Common Council, as well as the Milwaukee Promise Zones implementation. Um, he's been doing a lot of great work around the city for a while, and I'm excited to talk to him about his passions and why he does what he does. Thank you for joining me today, Sam Coleman. Ben, thanks so much for having me, and I just truly appreciate just the opportunity to share time and space uh, with you, with those who are uh, joining us. And so, yeah, I'm, I'm looking forward to the discussion. Thanks again. Certainly. Yeah, uh, likewise. Um, to start, uh, how are you? How is your day going today? Yeah, I mean, like you said, it's a beautiful day. I had an opportunity to to get outside and enjoy some of the, the sunshine and the breeze. And so I'm I'm feeling good, feeling energized. Uh, it's been a, a, a roller coaster of uh, the last five weeks. And so I appreciate any of the sunshine and beautiful weather that we can get just in the midst of kind of all the other things happening around us. Yeah, agreed. Uh, I think we're kind of on the tail end here of the, the nice, um, um, upper 60s fall weather. Um, I know it's going to cool down a lot uh, later this week and beyond. So yes, I'm glad uh, we get some sunshine and warmth in these, in this very dreadful uh, political and social climate that we're uh, enduring currently. Um, yeah. So we're, and we're going to talk all about that, but to start, um, Sam, what we talk about on Mr. Nice Guy, we talk love and fear, passion and creativity. And uh, I've been, we've been connected on social media for some time, but this is our first mm -hmm. uh, real personal interaction. And um, yeah, I guess, Sam, to start, um, are you uh, born and raised in Milwaukee? Born and raised in Milwaukee, uh, north side. I grew up on 17th Street, just off of Capitol and um yeah i love the city i've had an opportunity to see uh just all that this city uh has to offer and that's the range from our challenges and from the things that make us a great city and so uh born and raised here and i say that with so much pride great love to see that for sure um i'm originally from the chicago area but i came up here six years ago for uwm no reason to leave Love Milwaukee too much. Um, yeah, so um, when you were a kid, Sam, what did you want to be when you grew up? Hmm. So I always laugh when I say that because when I was a kid, I wanted to be a police officer. And I think I had, like many, many young boys growing up, you know, we watch these TV shows with heroic law enforcement officers and um, you know, when I was a kid, the police officers, there was actually a, a police officer who lived on our block. And so, you know, it was the, the essence of community policing. Uh, he knew our names, passed out baseball cards, um, you know, had good relationships and good rapport with folks in the community. And so I wanted to be like that. So growing up, I, I always thought that I would, um, you know, pursue a, a career in law enforcement and study police science and to kind of be a role model for uh, how law enforcement could, could work in communities that have been underserved. Sure, sure, yeah. I mean, 
ideally, like, yeah, that's what you would think of based on, yeah, like just how we were conditioned to understand police officers and from, yeah, watching like crime shows and other syndicated programs um, where, yeah, it, it seems like, yeah, it's, it's a job meant to better the community and enrich the community and whatnot. So right. um, what did you end up studying when you got older? So I actually did end up, so I did my associate's degree at Waukesha County Technical College, and I did that in police science. Uh, so finished that and was, you know, ready to apply to the academy and thought that, all right, like I'm, I'm about to be a, uh, you know, an agent of change in my community and, you know, gotten really excited about that. And then at the same time as I was completing my program and applying to transition from there to my bachelor's degree, I had become more and more aware of just the racial tension that existed in, in our nation and the history of that between community and law enforcement. And so I knew it from a, like from what I experienced and from like what I may have, you know, been able to observe on the news, but I hadn't really studied the history of uh, police and community relations and race relations and racism within law enforcement. I had never studied that and schools obviously don't teach that. And certainly in our program where I was uh, trained around police science and law enforcement, we certainly never talked about that either. And so at 20 years old, like just the scales, the scales falling from my eyes at uh, 20, you know, I had really become exposed to and more aware of, you know, the ugly side of law enforcement and the relationship that I have with communities. And so I pivoted from there, uh, wanted to study uh, business administration and ultimately wanted to be an administrator within educational spaces. And so I, I studied uh, business to pursue that. Sure, yeah. Um in education yeah. sure um and where did you study that for my undergrad i went to cardinal stretch and uh studied uh business management for my first master's i went to concordia university um, for education uh for my second master's uw madison for educational leadership and policy analysis and then for my phd studies uh, uw madison at leadership and policy analysis sure yeah um Awesome. So that being said, like, I guess, like, what was the first, like, what kind of really started sparking your interest in getting involved in, like, local, like, community organizing and education and politics and stuff like that? Like, where did it kind of um, stem from? So I was a, a, a youth minister at Parkland Assembly of God, and I attribute much of my leadership platform and much of just kind of who I am, I trace that back to just my training um, as, a, as a minister in a Pentecostal church in Sermon Park. Uh, the reason why I trace my leadership origins kind of back to that perspective into that place is I hadn't really thought about social action and how policy and law affects community members until we had severe flooding uh, here in Milwaukee. And I believe this was in 2000 and, um, uh, maybe 2008, I believe. And so during these, these severe floods in 2008, the um, federal government at that time was not 
providing support to communities that have been affected by these floods. And so FEMA and other federal emergency um, assistance or relief wasn't available here in Milwaukee. And so I remember being at a community forum uh, and it was hosted at Parkline and it was the sanctuary was packed with hundreds of residents and families who had literally lost their homes and lost everything in these, in these floods. And so sitting on the front row, um, you know, listening to the stories of mothers and grandmothers and uh, people who had, had cherished heirlooms from great, great grandparents, all of that being destroyed and lost in the floods and there was no relief, there was no help. And so seeing uh, some of our elected officials at the time, Senator Taylor, uh, Alderman Ashanti Hamilton, uh, and um, a couple other elected officials just kind of trying to navigate that tension and navigate um, those really difficult discussions around like how to provide relief to a community uh, where at the time there were no laws or no policies that were directing funding to be able to support communities. And so I got really excited about like my interest in law, my interest in policy, my interest in like systems leadership, like how could I leverage that so that we could write either into policy or into law um, the, the standard for directing resources to families that were being like affected by like natural disasters like such as these and other um, public health concerns and there's just no help and no relief. So it was that moment um, sitting in the sanctuary just looking at the tears of people and showing pictures of their homes and basements flooded and literally losing everything and pleading with our leaders here in our, in our local community um, to find a solution. And so that energized me to want to study under and, and work with some of our elected leaders to figure out like, how do you respond to a community who's saying like, please do something about this. So that was my entry point to um, getting involved in the community. And I didn't know what I wanted to do. I didn't know if that was going to be, I knew it wasn't going to be through law enforcement, but I didn't know it would be as an educator or um, supporting uh, individuals who have a passion for public service by, um, excuse me, supporting individuals who have a, a passion for, for public service by um, helping them run for office and providing support. I, I actually ran for office myself in 2012. And so, um, you know, just kind of, I've, I've been experimenting for years around like, how do I find my niche? How do I find my place of service and leadership? Um, here in Milwaukee where I can have the, the greatest impact on, on building capacity in, in communities and in systems that serve communities. For sure, yeah, that's a beautiful thing. Um, and it takes those, those realistic community testimonies um, to actualize that, to like really understand like, you know, this is the purpose I want to serve. I want to help these people. I want to listen to my community and actively make it a better place to live for all of us. Um, mm -hmm. That being said, uh, what was your first position in doing that um, in your journey? So again, so I, I, from, from there I served as a minister at Parkland Assembly of God. Um, mm -hmm. I had an opportunity through my, my service as a minister to partner with families who uh, were really experiencing maybe some of the most difficult times in their lives, like through the loss of a loved one or the loss of a child. And mm -hmm. so it was through that work, through providing grief counseling, that I began to learn more about some of the challenges our communities have with, with violence and, and 
and poverty, which leads to crime and, 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 viol and violence. And, and so I think that was probably the, the, the beginning. And then I also at the time uh, worked at the school that was associated to that church. And so I had an opportunity to, to frame how education and like the processes of education either like perpetuates inequity or, or disrupts it. Um, and so it was in that work that I began to study like systemic and institutional inequality and how systems such as education, public health, public safety, how that either supports um, equity and justice within communities or it maintains inequities and injustice. Um, I was wanting to do more outside of the realm of the church. And so uh, Senator Taylor, who I, who I love and adore, who's been a, um, a, a huge force in my life, her and I known each other, she, knew, she knows my mother. And so her and I had a discussion and um, yeah, she had a spot open in her, in her office. And this was during the time of uh, Act 10, which if, if we remember, uh, this is when uh, the collective bargaining rights of our public school educators uh, were initially being stripped away by our governor and by the legislature. And so as a, you know, I don't remember how old I was, 20 something year old, uh, you know, I had an opportunity to go work in Madison and, and I was, you know, working with Senator Taylor for about a month prior to uh, the Act 10 crisis that came about. And uh, I got a crash course in how policy uh, affects education. And as I looked at the stripping away of rights and the assault on educators, uh, who I believed it impacted the most were kids, black and brown kids who looked just like me, who came from the same communities and neighborhoods that I came from. Like I saw them uh, and us being affected the most by uh, the assault and the attack on public education. So uh, it was through my work with Senator Taylor that I really began to, to develop an interest in education and educational policy because I truly had gotten a, a baptism by fire around how policies affect uh, communities. And in this case, it was policies pertaining to, to public education. For sure, for sure, totally. Um, yeah, um, I'd love to hear about your work with uh, the City of Milwaukee Common Council. For, if you don't mind explaining um, specifically for those that don't know, like what exactly the Common Council is there for. Yep. So the Common Council is a, is, a, is a board of aldermen and alderwomen who essentially make up the, the leadership of, of the local community, so uh, at the city level. So there's the mayor's office, which serves as the um, kind of administration executive body of city government, and then the Common Council uh, essentially directs the, the legislative arm of local government at the city level and then oversees the city's budget um, as well and makes recommendations on the city's budget. So uh, pertaining to our uh, public safety, police department, public works, um, so forth. And so there's an alderman or alderwoman who represents each district um, and in their representation of the district, they vote on and approve licenses for stores. Um, uh, there are opportunities for them to weigh in on uh, certain municipal or, or, or uh, legislative codes around fines for uh, parking or uh, housing initiatives. So being able to provide grants and, and budget dollars from the city's, the city's budget to revitalize neighborhoods and communities or to 
prevent crime and public safety issues through community-based partnerships. And so the Common Council strategizes around building those partnerships and then ensuring that there are resources from the city's budget to support them. So um, anyway, I worked uh, at a non-instrumentality charter school that was chartered under Milwaukee Public Schools. And Alderman Ashanti Hamilton was um, and, and has been uh, for, for many, many years an educational uh, champion in our city with him having a background in education as well um, as, as a teacher. Um, and so as a mentor of mine and our, our work together through a program called Be the Change, which was a partnership between uh, the city of Milwaukee and Milwaukee Public Schools. Um, Alderman Hamilton and I at the time, uh, uh, Council President Hamilton and I developed a relationship through um, public schools, both traditional public schools and this non-instrumentality charter school um, to support black students around their access to college, career, and uh, post-secondary opportunities. And it was through that work that um, I had an opportunity to learn about um, some visions and some ideas that uh, council president at the time, uh, Hamilton had around the Promise Zones initiative. And so I transitioned from my role as an administrator at this uh, high school to partner with Ashanti Hamilton by working with his office as his chief of staff. And uh, during my time uh, with the Common Council and working with Alderman, President Hamilton, uh, there were three main initiatives that uh, that I worked on and that we were a part of at that time. And so the Promise Zones was certainly one. And the Promise Zones was a coordinated strategy between the city of Milwaukee, uh, local elected officials, and community-based organizations such as churches and youth groups uh, to support and, and revitalize communities that have been disadvantaged just by, by virtue of uh, the distribution of, of access and resources. So the Promise Zones was one kind of major initiative that I worked on while with President Hamilton's office. Uh, the second one was in response to the Department of Justice's uh, collaborative, the Department of Justice collaborative review on the uh, Milwaukee Police Department standard operating procedures. And so there was a, a significant body of work that had gone into uh, understanding what those recommendations were that came from the Department of Justice and then working with the police department in our local community to begin reforming and restructuring uh, the way police and community uh, partners to address crime and to prevent crime. And it was through the, the report from the Department of Justice that that work was speared. Um, and then in the third piece uh, that uh, President Hamilton and I uh, worked on and that I, that I was a part of um, was ensuring that community members, particularly in our district, but also then around, around the community had, around the city of Milwaukee, had an opportunity to access resources. So if they were not a part of like a youth group such as one of the Rebels or Urban Underground, that community members had um, an opportunity or, or a pathway of being able to access information uh, about resources. And so by developing and, and designing, and this work is, remains ongoing, um, a, data, a database of what those resources are so that if somebody were to contact the city and say like, hey, you know, my son needs a mentor or we need a tree cut down in our yard or we need, um, we're looking for support with grant writing. We wanted community members to be able to contact our automatic office for that and to be able to find those resources that are right here in our community and pr preferably 
owned and operated by um, black and brown folks and particularly black women. So um, anyway, that, that work remains ongoing and those were three of the main initiatives that, um, that I was extremely passionate about in, our, in my work there with the uh, Common, Office of the Common Council. Certainly, that's wonderful, Sam. Thank you for sharing all of that. Um, all great things all around. Um, and I'd love to hear more about the, the Milwaukee Promise Zones and the, the uh, successes of that initiative and like what it accomplished for the community. Yeah, so the Promise Zones initiative, um, and I'll, so it certainly predates um, my service with Alderman Hamilton's office, uh, but at that time there were, um, and if you remember, uh, President Obama had an initiative called the Promise Zones, and it was the federal government's approach to partnering with states and, and, and local municipalities within those states to identify zones or areas within communities that were disproportionately affected by uh, by poverty and then all the other symptoms of poverty, adverse health outcomes, crime, um, lack, deserts. Of lack of access, food deserts, absolutely. Yeah. So it was uh, through the city's application to that um, federal program to receive funding that I believe leaders and community members in Milwaukee began to identify like what promise zones could look like here. So we did not um, uh, receive an approved application for that process. And what I love about the leadership at the city level and communities is that didn't stop the work. And so although the federal government didn't approve uh, our application for the promise zones work, that work still continued. And so community members and um, local elected officials and uh, local pastors and our aldermen and alderwomen uh, worked to continue with the identification of zones in our city um, that was affected by food deserts, domestic violence, violent crime, lack of access to opportunities, all those things connected to poverty. Um, our leaders came together and formed um, resources and access to resources from our city's budget to not only identify those areas and identify supports, but to connect with uh, local communities, agencies with, within those zones, within those areas, to be able to train and partner and, and mobilize uh, residents of those communities to become part of the solutions to those challenges. And so I think about uh, the work that Sheriff Blue was leading on a 30th Street corridor around like looking at, th at this community that had been a truly affected by poverty and crime in the, uh, the Garden Homes area and Sheriff Blue and a host of other community organ organizations within the Garden Homes neighborhood uh, worked to bring um, resources and education and um, stability into this community. So that's one example of the many of ways that the Promise Zones Initiative um, was kind of a strategy to identify a challenge within a community identify uh, organizations within that community that would have the capacity to uh, respond to those challenges. And then the folks who lead those organizations are serving them, uh, partnering with members from that local community to help empower and deploy them to become um, truly uh, co-conspirators and like the solutions for that. So uh, I, I don't believe that, and when I say co-conspirators, I just mean like, like truly partners who are strategic and thoughtful in addressing these issues. Uh, because most of the times initiatives or strategies or programs are enacted upon communities without their input. So the point of the Promise Zones were for 
those communities to be able to decide for themselves what their solutions would be and what their priorities would be. And then from there, uh, receiving the support from a, a capacity uh, perspective from local community organizations and from the city to be able to bring those solutions and strategies to life. Certainly, yeah, that's great. That's, yeah. Hearing the, the personal inputs from the community members is of utmost importance with that implementation for sure. Um, yeah. So um, you are director of curriculum and instruction for the Sherwood School District. Mm -hmm. Um, would love to hear uh, how you uh, um, would uh, evolve into that role. Yeah, so as, as you may have heard certain themes in my kind of journey that I've talked about so far around policy, community relations, interests around racial justice and equity, um, and then also education. So as those kind of themes began to become of, of interest to me throughout my journey of public service. Um, I also continued to pursue my own education and my own studies. And so all this time, you know, while I was, you know, working at the city or working with uh, Senator Taylor or working at Parkland, I was in school the whole time as well, um, either at uh, Concordia or Stritch or, or Madison. And, um, I really began this to study educational administration, educational leadership, maybe about eight years ago. And just kind of through that, through those studies, um, moving, kind of thinking about myself as a, an administrator, because I initially thought that I would be a teacher and use my, my classroom as a platform to drive change. And, um, you know, after teaching, um, and I taught social studies, obviously, so I was really interested in government and really interested in the social sciences and, and teaching kids about government and about voting and about driving change in their community. Uh, but then, you know, a few years into that, I really began to think about my identity as a, a leader within public education. So um, my journey to Shorewood just kind of, I think, is the culmination of, and not the culmination because I have a long journey ahead of me too, but for where I am right now, I think it's the result of uh, my interest in justice, my interest in uh, systems leadership to address, you know, social issues such as poverty and inequity and access, um, addressing the relationships that communities have with the agencies, for example, law enforcement that are supposed to be positioned to be of service to them. And so um, it's through those interests and through that, um, kind of perspective and lens that I saw my work that I, I began to pursue pathways of, of educational administration and leadership. So uh, prior to coming to Shorewood, I worked with a network of K-8 schools, um, leading their student services and special education strategies. And um, I began to hear about, um, in, that, in that work, I began to hear about things that were happening in the Shorewood community. And as mentioned earlier, I grew up on 17th and Capitol. And, you know, this Shorewood is just, you know, three minutes east, right down Capitol from where I grew up. And so as I was, you know, watching the news and looking on Facebook at like the things happened in the Shorewood around the race relations and um, just kind of the racism and um, inequities that students were experiencing in the Shorewood School District, it really like, piqued my interest. Um, the following year, uh, the Sorwood School District had a, a position posted as their director for equity. And, the, and these are pretty common positions that we see, you know, 
certainly emerging in uh, public education and they've been around as chief diversity officers or chief equity officers and corporations, but now that educational systems are becoming more aware of the uh, racial inequity and, and inequities within education, uh, these types of positions come about. So anyway, that was my entry point to the Shorewood School District was my interest in addressing racial inequity and injustice within the, the educational system. So I served in that role for one year. Um, and then the uh, predecessor who served as the director of curriculum instruction transitioned from this role to become a superintendent in a neighboring district. And this created an opportunity for me to um, to transition into this role as director of curriculum instruction. Sure. And that being said, um, what were some ways that you helped address those racial issues that were going on in that community um, related to the school um, and in, in your role, I suppose? Yeah. So, so the two, I think the two most important ways for me to address, and, and the work is ongoing, so even though I'm not in that same role, I'm still very much so committed to the work. So the first one is around building relationships, like leading equity work requires um, working with people first. Uh, and so being able to build relationships because people's awareness of their biases, of their privileges, of how we either are maintaining inequity or disrupting inequity, but there's like no neutral ground in that. And we are all actors within that, either maintenance or disruption of inequity. I needed to build some relationships with members of our community, administrators and teachers, so that I could begin to do the work to help share information that would build our capacity to address, to address inequity. Uh, and then from there, uh, we know that racial inequities and all forms of inequity, um, they exist because there are inequitable and unjust systems that exist. So it's not that people wake up in the morning and decide they want to oppress people, and, and certainly some people do. But largely, the main reason why inequities persist is because we live in a nation and in a, in a, in a world, really, but uh, we live in a nation where systems have been designed and set up to give privileges and opportunity and advantage to some based on their racial identity while denying others of that. Class so society. Yeah. You're right. And so my work within the Shorewood School District was to do a systems, an in-depth systems analysis in partnership with our community so that as we're analyzing the outcomes of what our system is producing um, and the structure of our system, that it's not just me as an administrator doing this, but that I'm doing this analysis and interpretation of our system and reimagining what our system could look like uh, in partnership with our community and with our students and with our staff. And so we consulted with uh, Dr. Monique Liston and Ubuntu Research and Evaluation yeah. to lead our community through a six month process of analyzing our system and redesigning what a systems approach would look like to addressing equity in the Sherwood School District. So it was through those two ways, taking a systems approach to addressing inequities and building relationships so that those relationships could be leveraged to create actors or allies within the system to carry out the work. Um, and usually uh, people who approach equity, they do one or the other. They try to change the system without building relationships with the people who are within that system and that doesn't work. Or they try to do diversity training and workshops with people and expect that that is gonna change 
inequitable outcomes without ever addressing the systems that are producing those outcomes to begin with. So for me, my, my approach is to like address both at the same time. Yeah, yeah absolutely. That's, uh, that's crucial to yeah, not focus on, you know, just one, one aspect, but to um, specifically target the root. And uh, I think, and um, Ubuntu is a great organization. Big shout out to them. They do yes, spectacular yes. work. Um, that leads us to um, your other position with uh, Carmen Schools. Um, uh, if you want to elaborate a little bit on that. Yeah, so shout out to uh, Jennifer Lopez, who is leading uh, Carmen Schools as the uh, chief executive officer. She is doing amazing work. Um, and just her and all the women who are leading educational systems, doing the very hard and like laborious work to change our, the future for our young folks. I just salute them and, and, and give them a shout out right now. Uh, and then Jennifer, I think, is a prime example of you know, women of color who have leaned in to take on the work of educational leadership in a very personal and passionate way. Uh, I had an opportunity to meet Jennifer a few years ago. Um, and instantly when I met her, I was able to just pick up her vibes and her energy and her passion for like her sincerity about educational leadership that disrupts inequities. So when she transitioned to Carmen to, to lead Carmen schools, um, I watched her leadership very closely. Um, mainly because one of the schools is in pretty pr close proximity to where I live. And so I had an interest is based on, you know, Carmen Northwest as because it's near, near my home. Uh, but then I also had an interest in just the work that the school was doing because I had been invited to um, speak at a couple of assemblies there at the school and at UW Oshkosh where many Carmen students came out to uh, for the um, college diversity um, and inclusion day. And so I really noticed that there was something like super special happening at Carmen. And uh, I believe that it was the result of the high expectations and belief in the students that many of the teachers have, but then also the, the visionary and bold leadership that Jennifer and others um, have. And so I, I just, you know, as a community member who loved to see the work that was happening and wanted to be a cheerleader and a supporter to the work, um, I found ways to plug into just the, the, the great things that Carmen schools were doing. Um, and then the, an opportunity came up for me to, to serve on the board. And, you know, it was a no brainer for me to, you know, certainly uh, be a part of the, the minds and the, the opinions that guide and steer um, and even inform the direction that, uh, that Jennifer is, is kind of bouncing her ideas off of. And so, uh, yeah, it, it seemed like it was a natural fit to, to serve on the board and certainly made sense to me just based on my belief in the vision and mission of Carmen Schools, my support of Jennifer, and just knowing how important it is for uh, the, the leadership or the board of the organization to be diverse and to be able to offer or represent the opinions and perspectives of uh, community members who, like, who look like the students and families being served. So that's kind of what, what led me to um, my, my interest in serving with the Board of Carmen. And, and again, my involvement is, you know, like a, it's so minimal compared to like the work that Jennifer and her team and the teachers and administrators are doing there every day. And so 
I mean, I certainly don't say any of this to, to pat myself on the back. Um, I really salute and lift them up. And I'm just happy to be a part of the team of the, the team of supporters who really believe in the vision and the mission there. Shout out to Jennifer Lopez and uh, yeah, shout out to them. And uh, yeah, um, most definitely. Thank you for sharing that as well. So Sam, you are obviously a champion of public education. You know, you have worked with and, uh, um, and really like, you know, empathized with struggles in the struggles from a youth standpoint, as well as community standpoint. And uh, I've noticed sort of like a recurring yeah. theme in a lot of your positions and where it's just, is, you know, listening to what communities need from yeah. the local administrators and legislator and boards. Like it's about, and it's essentially like democracy, democratizing resources seems to be a very big mm -hmm. thing in your line of yeah. work, which is wonderful. And, you are also a mentor for high school students um, or post-secondary. And I think it's important to talk right now about what, like, kind of just like the, how the political and social and also environmental conditions of our world right now, this, uh, this very tumultuous year we've been enduring right now, like, how it's affecting the youth right now, like how it's affecting how they feel about themselves and their futures or how they feel about, you know, how safe they are or um, their access to opportunities in the future. And I'm, I'm curious to like what in your experience, like what you think, um, what you think like teenagers and high, like the youth right now, like what do you think they need most of right now from their mentors? Yeah, I think they need the truth. I think, you know, young people have been lied to for generations and generations about the power that they have within them. Like they're often told like, you are the future, you can lead later. And really our young people are ready to lead and they're ready to go right now. And so they've been lied to about history. They've been lied to about, Abraham Lincoln and George Washington, like all these things that, you know, the, the, the nation has been painted. Christopher Columbus, like, uh, to bring it yeah, to Christopher speak. Columbus, exactly, yeah. exactly. Yeah. And our young folks need to know the truth and they need to be empowered to deal with the truth and implicate themselves and the solutions right now. And for me as a mentor, I'm all about truth telling and implicating young people in solutions right now. And I think that as I study social change and movements for justice around the world, it has, all, it has always been the youthful energy in the young people that you know, have driven that change. And so I think that right now we see a huge lack of leadership for our young people. And so our young people are, and I know that folks might disagree with me or have an argument with me about this, but I'm telling my truth and from my perspective, there is a significant lack of leadership and truth telling with our city's young people. And as a result, many of our young people are growing up and moving through educational systems and they don't know who they are. They don't know where they come from, 
we're not teaching them about the rich ancestry that they have and the power within their heritage and the power that they have to make change in the communities and societies that they, that they live in. And so young people grow up with an identity of themselves that they didn't create and certainly doesn't best serve them. And so, and I'm generalizing because this is not all young people, but many of our young people grow up experiencing this crisis with how they identify is because they've been lied to so much by how we educate them and entertainment streams and how we talk about our young people in the media and on the news and you know the administrator in the white house like how he's talking about young folks who are peacefully demonstrating and peacefully protesting like our young folks need to know the truth and they need to be empowered to um, be implicated in the solutions and so my role as a mentor has always been uh, to tell my young people the truth and then to involve them in the leadership for, for solutions. And I remember at very early ages, some of my mentors, Josh and Thomas and Titus and Tyler and Daquan, and, and all of them are doing amazing things right now. And I remember like them coming with me to demonstrations and rallies and protests and strategy sessions and listening sessions or sitting around the living room um, you know, reading books and, you know, watching Malcolm X and just like figuring out like who are, who we are as leaders and change agents within our community and who we can be right now. And so I think more of our young, more of our young people need that, like they need uh, folks who are older and their same peers to provide spaces for them to engage in the truth, to, to talk through strategy, but then also to like speak into them about like who they are as young kings and young queens, like in this in this nation and in this world, and I think our young people need that more than anything else. Yeah, I wholeheartedly agree, and I'm really glad you said that because we are. Yeah, that's, me up. that's the most of everything that I said today. Like that is the most important part. Like all the other stuff about school leadership and policy leadership and all of that stuff. Like. To me, none of that even matters if we're not talking about our young people and uh, the young folks who are going to inherit the baton or inherit the community that we leave for them or that they take from us or we pass on, like however that transition is going to happen. Like we have to be able to have like an empowered, informed, um, like radical youth, you know, group, uh, you know, generation of young folks who are prepared to take our generation and take our community like to the next level, to the next place. And our goal is certainly not regression, it's, it's to progress and it's to go further. And the only way that that happens is like the generation that's gonna move the work forward. So um, yeah, what we just said in the last four or five minutes to me are, is, is the most important part of, of our time here today. And that yeah. is, you know, highlighting and, 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 and lifting up you know, our young folks. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Like, um, you know, our, the young generation, um, <clears throat> you know, millennials or however people tend to refer to them, like, you know, just the, 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 the revolutionary movement um, in essence, no matter, which is primarily, it's dominated by young people, but there are older generations part of it too, for sure, is, not being is not taking no for an answer anymore mm. um you know from um I, I i'd say like from a young age like whether it was in in my personal experience like um whether it was in the household in the classroom or from 
media influences, we are so indoctrinated with the idea that we have to adapt to the system. The system doesn't right. have to adapt to us. And, uh, and, the, and because of that, you know, there's such a lack of investment in the youth. And, uh, mm -hmm. you know, we're, and because of that, kind of what you were saying earlier about being told the truth and whatnot, like, yeah, a lot of folks grow up and uh, yeah, they have, they lack a sense of identity and purpose because they weren't given ample resources and opportunities to explore what they want to do in this life. Um, mm -hmm. Or they were told that like, oh, you'll like, you know, those leadership positions are meant for people that are, that like have more than you or have yeah. experienced yeah. more than you. You have these and, kids like growing up with, you know, not believing in themselves. So they grow up with mental health issues. So they grow up with misplaced emotions and, um, and it just grows in a very ugly and vicious um, mm -hmm. web of, of um, factors that make them can make people feel very powerless and uh, yeah. that comes with the truth and that comes with questioning you know the the um, highly adopted narratives um, that our education system has lived by for so long and changing about how we have these conversations about things like you know the Black Panthers and Indigenous Peoples Day and, uh, um, you know, Stonewall riots and uh, the world revolutions against imperialism and stuff like that. I mean, this, it, it comes in many different forms, but I'm actually going to bring it to a more specific, um, a specific topic. Um, what occur what has been occurring in Wauwatosa in the last week. Um, okay. How do you feel? Like, I guess, like, what, what is your reaction to what is going on right now? How, and how do you feel our community should be responding right now? Yeah, I mean, uh, I, uh, first, my heart breaks for uh, Alvin Cole and his, his family. And so my condolences are with uh, with his family and just dealing with the loss of a young life uh, just it seems like there is um, like a, a story stuck on repeat with uh, young black men and women uh, boys and girls who have interactions with law enforcement that are very different than the interactions that I opened our discussion with that I remember having and that I envisioned law enforcement being like we know that many times those interactions um, don't go in that same way. And so uh, this is another example of, of that. And, you know, I think the situation in Wauwatosa is, is a, it fits very neatly and very perfectly in a, a narrative that like captures the frustration the community has with um, being abused by uh, and, and maybe not, not valued by, not respected by the law enforcement that is anticipated and expected to protect them. The, the problem that uh, demonstrators are wanting to lift up, in addition to the tragedy with uh, Mr. Cole, is, is the fact that 
law enforcement and you know not even just in Wauwatosa but across our nation um, has had a failure to hold itself accountable um, and has had a failure to establish a standard for justice that, justice that all law enforcement officers are held to. And so I think that the demonstrations in Wauwatosa um, and Kenosha and Georgia and Kentucky and in all over the nation um, is around community members challenging, encouraging, pushing legislators and the power structure to re-examine what we invest our dollars in. And so when we talk about, as we just talked about a little while ago about investment, I think that instead of the resources that we have often put into systems that react to, and in many ways, very unhealthy ways react to the symptoms of poverty, which are often crime and violence, um, we need to be smarter about how we invest. And those same funds should be diverted into prevention strategies that are, are set up and have the capacity to address those symptoms of poverty. So addressing mental health, addressing food insecurities, addressing inequitable access to quality education, addressing mentoring opportunities and uh, community uh, engagement and recreation opportunities so that young people are learning about pathways you know, that they can take through their adolescence and into adulthood that allow them to, to, to lead and get back to their communities. Like those types of investments require dollars, requires time, it requires being prioritized within city and state budgets. And I think that if we invest in prevention in those ways, we will have less discussions about uh, the misactions of law enforcement and we'll have more discussions about how properly investing in prevention strategies uh, minimizes and addresses the concerns and the issues that we have that are directly tied to systemic oppression uh, and the divestment in communities where we see these types of incidents happen. Bingo, Sam. I, I'm with you there. I, yeah. Um, everything all around, like, yes, the, the divestment from oppressive systems and the, the redistribution and the reinvestment into community initiatives that continue to allocate opportunity everywhere. Um, mm -hmm. You know, and, and it is, it is manifesting in small victories um, across the nation. You know, they're, even on a local scale here, uh, we got MPD out of MPS this past summer, um, yeah. which was yep. a victory. And uh, big shout out to leaders in, leaders igniting transformation for helping oversee that organizing. Um, Absolutely. But, yeah, but we have a lot of work to still do. Um, and uh, I, I guess like I just, you know, I commend and am in solidarity with all of the really brave local organizers and community activists and advocates that have, you know, put themselves on the line and, and have relentlessly fought for this justice, um, especially this year. Um, yeah. So, yeah, I'm, yeah. Thank you again, Sam, for joining me today. Um, it's been great to talk to you. Um, Yes. Thank you for having me. Uh, thank you for the work that you are doing today and just always with telling the stories and providing just space for 
um, just a, a perspective and a narrative to be shared that in many cases, are, you know, it's often silenced or left out. So, you know, thank you for the work that you do to uplift these stories and uh, to bring these narratives to light. And uh, it's, it's such a pleasure. And I feel like we know each other so well, and yeah. although we haven't really had an opportunity to formally connect, uh, I follow you very closely. I follow the information that you share very closely. So just, you know, please keep up that work. It's super important. Thank you, Sam. Thank you, Sam. That means a, lot, a great deal. I appreciate it. And likewise, um, on our way out here, uh, the closing two questions. Sam, what keeps you up at night? Yeah, I mean, the, the, the young folks and their, their future is what keeps me up at night. And so when I think about just the city that, um, that we live in and all the great things that it has to offer, um, as well as the challenges that our young people have to navigate on a day-to-day -day basis. Um, I, th I think about that day and night. And my niece, I don't know if you could, could see her, but uh, my niece who's even moving back and forth uh, here right now, like super bright, you know, young queen. Uh, shout out to Jordan, what grade are you? I think she's in fifth grade. And so I think about like Jordan who's in fifth grade or, um, you know, some of my students and former students and just the, the city that they have to navigate. And, you know, she's extremely bright and has an extremely bright future ahead of her. And we just need the city to agree with that. And many times the destiny and the uh, potential that our young folks have, that they know they have, they often have to navigate a city that doesn't agree with them on, on their potential and their mattering. And that belong in this community. So that, that's what keeps me up at night. And when I'm up at night, um, I'm thinking about solutions. I'm thinking about, you know, how do we address that? Um, on the other hand, what puts you to sleep? Um, sleep, I do not sleep. No, I feel like, <laughs> you know, I really don't, I really don't get much sleep. Uh, so uh, I think, some of those small victories so you talked about you know just briefly you know i won't call them small victories but i'll call them like just the incremental battles yeah. that are on along the way and you know being able to rest after some of those incremental battles i think are, is important so uh, i rest when there's a goal or a milestone that we cross and it's you know gets us a little closer to you know, to the justice and equity that, that we want to see for, you know, for all of our people here in the city. And so um, I can rest well knowing that a day's work went into, like putting my all in, into to those incremental battles, those incremental wins. Certainly. The increments are not to be overlooked. Um, right. Neither are the reforms. They, they're by no means a they're by no means an end point, but they are a checkpoint and uh, right. deserve to be celebrated all around. So thank you again, Sam Coleman, for being on the show. And uh, for everyone watching, uh, thank you so much for tuning in. We will see you next time. Mm -hmm.